You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. What is a cyclical downturn? I'll tell you what it is. It's a sale. And if you think a company was a good speculative buy when it was white hot in July at $2, and it's now at $1.25, if nothing has changed, it's gone from being a good buy to a great buy. Well, thank you for tuning back into Mining Stock Education. We're going to be speaking with uh, frequent guest Rick Rule from Sprott U.S. Holdings. He's the president and CEO, has over four decades uh, investing in the resource sector. Uh, He doesn't really need an introduction, even as much of an introduction as I just gave. I'm Bill Powers. This is Mining Stock Education. Rick, thanks for joining me again. And we spoke a few interviews ago about Warren Buffett buying gold stocks. Well, it came out in his latest 13F filing that he sold, I believe, about 9 million shares, which is about 42% of his position in Barrick. And he also was unloading more bank stocks, which I believe last time you said was even more significant to you. Any commentary you can provide to us on the most recent filings uh, from Berkshire Hathaway? I I can't comment much on the Barrick sale. Uh, The Barrick acquisition made sense to me at the time not so much as a speculation on gold, which I still think that he believes is a pet rock, but rather simply that uh, Barrick was cheap. In other words, the free, the free cash flow generation, and in particular, the net present value of future cash flows relative to enterprise value was attractive. I think I said at the time, and I still believe that the decision to buy it well, probably wasn't made by Buffett himself, but rather by one of the underlings. Well, For you and I, an investment of that magnitude would be important Uh, for Mr. Buffett and for Berkshire Hathaway, a $500 million uh, allocation is uh, not even a punctuation, not even an afterthought. (laughs) The um, bank stocks, uh, I think, are much more interesting. Buffett has said himself lately that the whole equation of investing changes in a period of negative real interest rates. Um, as an example, in his own business, in the insurance business, you run the, you run the insurance business for float. It's a sophisticated form of borrowing. You loan the client your risk capacity in return for premiums. And the premiums received prior to the claims paid constitutes a pool of capital that's neither debt nor equity. It's a wonderful thing, this float unless you have a period of negative interest rates. The idea that you're that investing your float costs you money as opposed to making you money <coughs> means that your float is valueless. Similarly, with regards to the banks, uh, I think Mr. Buffett is looking at the negative real yields and looking at the fact that the lending spreads that exist uh, are probably insufficient risk relative to the leverage nature of, first of all, the economy, and secondly, the banks, And the risk, too, that the interest rate rises. An interest rate rise uh, would decimate the value of the bank's fixed-term liabilities, particularly things like 30-year mortgages. And I think that uh, Buffett sees uh, the end of the cycle of perpetually lower interest rates, the things that make bonds a speculation, as example, rather than an investment. And he's beginning to uh, take care to position his portfolio to uh, take into account the end of the credit bull market and the end of the bond bull market. Uh, And he's done that, I think, intelligently uh, by getting rid of franchises 
that are real yield and spread lending oriented like the big commercial banks. What about Kroger? Um, I, well, Kroger, I should say, when I saw that he added to that position, it made sense. Um, whether you're in a down economy or up economy, we all need to eat, especially with price inflation that we see. No matter what the government data sends us, I do the shopping, so I know what I'm paying and prices are going up. That makes sense to me. But uh, GM was another one that stood out, Rick. I'm here in Detroit, so I have a lot of friends that are engineers and they have a, their anxiety financially is directly related to how successful GM is. He added to GM. And for those of us that are maybe a little more negative on the economy, that won't surprise me. Any commentary here you could provide? Uh, no, actually, I'm less, let me rephrase, I'm, I'm less willing in my declining years to comment on things where I don't feel that my knowledge is competitive. Uh, I, I honestly feel that my knowledge is quite competitive in extractive industries because I spent 45 years getting to know them. I've also been a financial services investor, including uh, being part of the st startup of several banks. And so I don't feel on strange ground commenting on banks. Uh, with regards to things like supermarkets, I do my best not to step in them. Uh, and I probably buy a car every 15 years. So I'm unable to intelligently comment on either of those. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question of which you are an expert. Let's see, let's head over to Africa and mining. Endeavor Mining, the producer, bought Semifo, uh, you know, in this summer. And then recently, they're going to acquire, they announced Taranga Gold for only about a 5% premium. What is your uh, commentary here? Do you like the merger because it lowers G&A and makes the company bigger or any other insights you can share? Everybody needs to understand this is not investment advice, uh, although I own Endeavor. I think this merger is individually and in terms of uh, what it illustrates, spectacular. The Endeavor people have been just absolutely spectacular implementers. Their merger with Semifo was well-conceived. The merger with Taranga is well-conceived. Their largest shareholder, La Mancha, is a superb African investment group and extremely supportive. Uh, the merger is in every way I think, a wonderful thing. There are, of course, people who were disappointed, uh, people who were looking to see Taranga sold for cash. But I don't think that they understand, uh, and synergy is an overused word, but I'll use it anyway, the synergy associated with this. I think this is a case where uh, five plus one can equal seven as opposed to six. Uh, I think for the reasons that you described, which is to say uh, uh, reduction in general and administrative expense relative to assets under management. If you can save 60 or $70 million a year in reduced GNA, this is like a mine that never has to deplete, a small mine that never has to deplete. It never goes away. It's wonderful. The second thing is that it, the Lundins have proven over 30 years that merging these companies, getting larger entities, uh, increases the market capitalization, increases the liquidity, uh, and uh, increases the price per share, thereby lowering your cost of capital. Mining is a competitive business. A lower cost of capital is a durable competitive advantage. Finally, the officers and directors of the company are allowed to make investment decisions over a much broader asset base and a much broader opportunity set. So as an example, a, a one asset company may be forced as a consequence of the fact that the guys who run it still want to have jobs to make investment decisions that are suboptimal. If you are Endeavor, Semifo, Taranga, La Mancha, you have a very broad opportunity set and optimizing your capital allocation best on, based on the best available outcomes out of say 10 or 11 uh, possibilities 
gives you the chance over time to meaningfully improve your investment results. I'm very enthusiastic about it. I also need to say, I'm grudgingly enthusiastic about Africa. Uh, I don't consider uh, most African companies to be examples of good governance, but then I don't, ex I don't think that most governments around the world are examples of good governance. And I'm incredibly uh, impressed with the emergence of the African middle class and the generation of young educated millennials who I think will be much less inclined to put up with the foolishness that the big men in Africa have exhibited over the last 50 years. So I, I, need, to, I, I need to say I'm an intermediate and long-term Africa bull. So mm. I, I like this merger from every angle. Fury Gold Mines is a Canada-focused exploration and development company committed to aggressively growing its scalable high-grade gold assets with major drill campaigns planned across its 3.5 million ounce portfolio. Fury is led by a management team of proven explorers and developers with a track record of success in advancing and financing project development. Fury Gold Mines is well positioned to create value for investors with low-risk development growth and the potential for a new major discovery. Fury Gold Mines trades on the TSX and NYSE American under the ticker F-U-R-Y. To learn more, go to furygoldmines.com. That's furygoldmines.com. Rick, uh, tax law selling. It seems like uh, some of us were wondering if we were really going to get into it in the junior miners, but especially as gold has sold off. I, I've seen some charts and I bought some shares in the last week of some junior miners that really took a nosedive in the last 30 days. Any general thoughts you could share with us or advice for tax law selling this year? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this the last time in our last interview. Uh, the truth is that in addition to being an extraordinarily uh, cyclical business, this is a very volatile business. It is possible to have cyclical declines in the indexes of between 10 and 15% in a secular bull market uh, and to have them at least annually. I mean, the market can fluctuate by 15% uh, by the same ease with which you breathe. Uh, what we've been through in a historical context isn't even a hiccup uh, and it has people scared. That's an example of people who haven't worked hard enough on their portfolio and on their knowledge to have confidence in what it is that they're doing. What is a cyclical downturn? I'll tell you what it is. It's a sale. And if you think a company was a good speculative buy when it was white hot in July at $2, and it's now at $1.25. If nothing has changed, it's gone from being a good buy to a great buy. The idea that people, millions of people, aren't sophisticated enough to recognize this is probably, frankly, the author of most of my success over the last 30 years. Um, so while on an individual level, I sort of mourn for people who haven't figured out that if they like an asset well, it's better to buy it cheap. Uh, from a personal basis, I'm absolutely delighted. Listen, this summer, the juniors, the stuff that most of your people are interested in, uh, were way, way, way too hot. Uh, companies that shouldn't have been able to raise capital at any price uh, under any means raised $20 million or $25 million. The hold periods are coming off that stock. Uh, the market got awash in financings. And the people who were stupidly brave in the summer are going to become stupidly afraid which means that we're going to wash through a lot of stock and prices are going to go lower. And mercifully, the good stuff is going to go down with the bad. The way you take advantage of this is investing enough in yourself that you can understand the difference between the good and the bad. 
And when the morons sell off the good, you do them a favor and take it off them. So kind of you to do that. (laughs) ESG. When I talk to a lot of European investors in the mining sector, ESG seems to be a theme that comes up more. In fact, I spoke to an analyst uh, earlier this year, and he said that's the number one theme for him this year. What are your thoughts on ESG? And do you think that you and me as North American resource investors, that we don't think enough about this? Uh, ESG is paramount for many institutional investors. Uh, We at Sprott begin many of our conversations with ESG because it's going to come up. We have also importantly been focused on many aspects of ESG for seven seven or eight years at Sprott. Uh, I think it's important to unpack ESG as E, that is to say environmental, S, which is to say social, and G, which is to say governance, and not lump it into one catch-all feel-good phrase. You know, it used to be called CSR, or Corporate Social Responsibility, and I've given a couple of lectures, which people can can look up, saying that the right way to look at it is Corporate Social Opportunity. Uh, The idea that the mining industry ought to be able to get away with what it got away with when I came into the industry, which is to say the export of all kinds of deleterious materials from from the mine site, is wrong. But mining by its nature is fairly sustainable in that the footprint of mining relative to the economic activity that it generates is tiny. If you were, as an example, to compare mining with other forms of economic activity in the United States, like let's say golf courses, uh, green monocultures in riparian habitats, the environmental impact of mining relative to golf courses is negligible, but golf courses are of course green. So people think they're pretty. So in the first instance, we need to unpack what ESG is and think about doing no actual as opposed to no psychological harm. The second thing that we need to understand though is that ESG is an opportunity. As an example, in the mining business, when I came into it, the whole mining business, at least the top end of it, looked like me. Big white guys, uh, often old white guys. The idea that 3% of humankind had enough talent and enough intellect to maximize the opportunities available in mining is stupid. Uh, Why wouldn't we uh, involve, as an example, more women in the business? Why wouldn't we access 50% of humankind? I'm not talking about writing an old wrong. Somebody else can do that. I'm a speculator. I'm looking for optimized outcomes. And why, looking for optimized outcomes, would we obviate the contribution of half of humankind? Similarly, uh, several people, but most notably Mark Bristow, has shown the advantage of uh, indigenous uh, employees in countries. The idea that you airlift uh, every three weeks somebody from Perth uh, to work in Cameroon when there are lots of Cameroonians uh, who want to be in Cameroon, uh, have good education and don't have the same employment opportunities available to them in their own market. I mean, Bristow points out that this is the height of stupidity the median quality of the potential employee employee in West African countries is higher given the lack of employment opportunities. And unlike the Australian or the Canadian, they want to live there. <laughs> and we should be all over governance. Now, what I think are the governance, governance issues may be different than what the big thinkers think about as governance issues. But I, you know, I'd certainly like to see directors, as an example, be fairly large shareholders. <laughs> I think that's part of governance. And I absolutely think that uh, the parts of ESG 
that have to do with first doing no harm, uh, but also employing the company to the greatest range of opportunity sets is important. The other thing that ends up, and we've seen this within Sprott being important about ESG that people don't think about, is employees of companies want to be involved in something bigger than themselves. They don't just want a paycheck to take care of their family. They want to believe that they are part of an organization that's a good organization. And employees that see themselves as part of an organization that is in addition to making money and paying them, doing a good thing, are employees that are A, happier and B, more loyal to the organization. One example would be earlier this year during the Australian bushfires, Sprott, because we've made a lot of money in Australia for the last 40 years and have a lot of Australian friends, made a matching grant that allowed employees to put money up for Australian relief efforts associated with the, the bushfires, which Sprott would match. And the outpouring of goodwill from the employees around that was truly gratifying. The importance of real ESG initiatives on employee morale can't be overstated. Excellent. And uh, soft commodities, Rick, before you go for 2021, are there any soft commodities that you could just bring to our awareness that might you might be bullish on? Uh, I'm not smart enough other than the whole sector. You know, if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have said beans, but they've done it. You know, uh, I mean, the beans have been, soybeans have been on fire. Uh, I think I've told you before on your show, Bill, that the only sector of developed real estate that I'm investing in now is... Um, high, high, high quality U.S. farmland in the upper Midwest, simply because all of the soft commodities, but especially the U.S. with the trade wars, got oversold. And I'm not suggesting that they're going to turn around in 2020 or 2021 or 2022. I'm not smart enough to tell you that. But I am smart enough to tell you that uh, in a world where there are more people every day and those people want to eat and they want to eat better than their parents did, that... uh, the idea that soft commodities had fallen 50% in real prices and more in nominal prices was unsustainable. Uh, I'm not at age 67 going to be a farmer. I'm not going to stretch fence. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to buy farmland and I'm going to lease it to somebody better than I. Uh, But that's certainly a bet on the recovery of soft commodity prices in the next five to 10 years. And why the upper Midwest? Just because it was the uh, proposed best value? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd say the lower, the lowest risk, probably on an unrisked basis, Uruguay, Paraguay, and Argentina might be better risks. But those economies are still finding their own way in terms of governance and their, their willingness to give permission to foreign owners to take cash out of those markets. The U.S. upper Midwest has superb soils. It has the best infrastructure in the world. It has access to one of the best markets in the world, which is to say the United States. It has more uh, technological and financial infrastructure available to it and a better farming population than anywhere else in the world. And importantly, it has the Mississippi River system, which allows the distribution of inputs, heavy inputs like fertilizer, and the export uh, of product, which is to say grain, uh, on water which is the cheapest form of transportation for bulk commodities in the world. So for many, many, many reasons, the talent of the farmers uh, and other reasons like that, uh, I favor um, the U.S. upper Midwest. I also like the fact that the demographics of American agriculture are changing very rapidly. The smaller family farm, which is to say the 200, 300, 400 acre farm operated by somebody my age is going the way of the dodo. 
the farming operations that exist today are 4,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 acres with the farming family uh, owning perhaps six or 800 acres and leasing the rest from people like me. So the whole turnover that's happening now with uh, older farmers whose sons or daughters don't want to continue the family operation selling uh, and then uh, financial operators like myself leasing the land to families who are able to operate on a larger scale, employ more capital and more expertise in the business means that the whole farming business itself is upgrading in terms of capitalization and um, sophistication very, very rapidly. Yes. Rick, before you go, the offer to review uh, my listeners' portfolio still stands? Uh, absolutely. I'll tell you, I've, uh, I think I've been able to teach a lot in this process, but I learned a lot too. The offer briefly is that I'd love to engage uh, your listeners in discussion and to incent them to do that, uh, if your listeners will go to a website, SprottUSA, one word, S-P-R-O-T-T-U-S-A dot com forward slash rankings, uh, enter your natural resource portfolio. Please, no pot stocks, no bank stocks, no super, supermarkets, just your resource portfolio. I'll rank those stocks one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. I will also comment briefly on those names where I think that my comments might have some value. And I will include, if you use the word charts in the subject line, uh, the 50-year Barron's Gold Mining Index, which is the best visual tool for examining the anatomy of gold bull markets I've ever seen. And also a 100-year commodity chart that talks about the relative valuations of commodities relative to other aspects of the economy going back over the last 100 years. Once again, SprottUSA.com forward slash rankings. And that link I will also put in the show notes for ease of clicking. Rick, I know you're a busy man, but thanks for taking time out of your day to come on the show. Much appreciated. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.